Amen. Welcome to Freedom. So glad that you're here today. And uh, many who are watching and uh, joining in online, welcome to Freedom Online. Glad to have you be a part of things in that way. Uh, if you've got your Bibles, I'm going to invite you to open to the last page, the very last page before the maps. We are going to uh, cover the final chapter of the Bible today as we conclude a series entitled uh, Paradise Lost and Found where we've been looking at the opening and the closing portions of Scripture, the bookends of the Bible that help to make so much more sense out of everything in between. I was thinking this week as I was spending a lot of time studying and meditating on the final words of Scripture, the final words of a story just inform you so much about the story as a whole and about the person behind the story. And I was just thinking how much this speaks to us about the heart of our faith and who God is and how this stands in sharp contrast to other versions of who God is. You know, one of the biggest questions that people in our culture wrestle with today is a fundamental question about religion, faith, and God. And one way to sum it up is just this. Are all religions the same? And is every version of faith in some God really just a different way of expressing the same faith in the same God? It's a fair question. It's a question that everybody at some level has to wrestle with. There are a lot of people today who would suggest it doesn't matter what religion you buy into, as long as you're sincere in what you believe, then that belief will lead you to a connection to whoever the true God is. A lot of sincere people believe that. But it's a question worth having to explore. It's a premise that really deserves to be pushed on a bit. And I want to just point something out about that. When you think about the faiths of the world, there are two in terms of number of adherents that tower above all the rest, and they are Christianity and Islam. Far and away, there are way more Christians on earth than people of any other faith. The strong second to that would be Islam. You're well aware of that. There are about a billion Muslims in the world. And there are a number of things that we share in common with Muslims, we, we both are monotheistic. There are a lot of faiths that are. We both trace our heritage back to Abraham and, and both hold the scriptures that we believe to be significant, although what they do with them is considerably different. But that's about where the parallels come to a, a close. That's about where they end. And there's probably no portion of scripture or no part of of our faith where the two stand in sharper contrast than the very end of the story. We're going to look today at the conclusion of the Bible, the very final words of Scripture. And I'll tell you, even before we read them, that it's covered in grace. That it is a wonderful, loving call and invitation again and again to come, come and receive, come and and partake, come and belong, come and receive the goodness of God. It is a it is a message of love and compassion from a loving, caring Creator and Father, which stands in such stark contrast to Islam, the Quran, all of which reveals a far-off, distant, angry God. And on the final page of the Quran, you will find a clear call to murder and destroy all who refuse to buy into faith in Allah. It's on the final. I mean, it, it actually comes as like a shock that when you get to the last two pages of the Quran, that that's where it's the call to arms to go and kill 
all of those who will not believe. And it's, it's a call, you know, of put the foot to the throat. And if they want, if they will not buy into this faith, you kill them. How smart do you have to be to realize these are not the same? These are not revealing the same God. These are not just two different sides of the same coin. Christianity reveals a God who calls us to love, to serve, to forgive, to accept. And that is the message of Jesus. Today as we dive into this chapter, I want you to hear the grace and the love of God. As we close the story of Scripture, as we close the canon with Revelation 22, beginning in verse 1, I would remind you, if you weren't here last week, you may want to go back and listen to the message online. It's just, um, I find this really intriguing stuff, and, and I, don't, um, I don't hear it being taught a whole lot. And where chapter 22 picks up, thank you, Barbara, lo- losing stuff, thank you. <laughs> where chapter 22 picks up, is in the middle of John receiving this revelation where an angel of God is sort of being the, the commentator or the narrator for him as he's being given a vision firsthand of both heaven and of the future. And so uh, chapter 21 has been giving us this very vivid description of, of all that's going to be the new creation as God creates a new Jerusalem, a new earth, a new universe, And the first paragraph of 22 is just a a continuation of 21. It's the description of the place. And so in verse 1 we read, Then he, the he being uh, the angel, uh, showed me, with me being John the Beloved, John the Apostle, one of the two closest friends of Jesus, he showed me the river of the water of life, clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the city's main street, It's interesting how the picture of the holy city begins to change as you start into this chapter because everything in the previous chapter was about, it's almost like how an architect would describe the city. It's the dimensions, it's the materials, it's it's that nuts and bolts kind of stuff. But now we begin to get a feel for the city. That it's not just a city made of gold and it's not just all these precious stones and this incredible foundation and, and the glory. But now we begin to have some sense of the warmth of this place. That there is flowing, I mean it's, it's a wild picture, right down the middle of, of the main street of the New Jerusalem. There is a river of the water of life. Now remember, this is paradise restored. We got a glimpse of paradise in Genesis 1 and 2. And there was a description of the river that fed the all, all the other rivers. And you remember at the heart of all this, there's going to be the tree of life. All this is being restored. There's a river flowing down the middle of this, of this wide avenue. I just picture in my mind all of these little arched bridges that will take you from one side to the other. And it's, the river emanates from the throne of God and of the Lamb, the Lamb being the Lord Jesus, God's perfect sacrifice for us. And the tree of life was on each side of the river, bearing twelve kinds of fruit, producing its fruit every month. You just begin to see in the new creation, in the new order, things are just going to work in a different way. Wouldn't you love to be able to plant a tree in your yard and somebody says, well, what kind of fruit tree is that? Well, it grows satsumas in March. It grows lemons in April. It grows pecans in May. I mean, if you could just go down the line and name off your 12 favorite things, it bears all those. This, this is in the new order. A dozen different fruits off the same tree. And the leaves of that tree are for the healing of the nations, and there will no longer be any curse. 
when sin entered the world, there was a curse that affected everything. All of humanity began to live under a curse. Work became so much more toilsome. Childbirth became a nightmare. The, the land itself was cursed. The earth was cursed. The scripture says all of creation groans. It's in travail, longing for the full revelation of the sons and daughters of God when the curse will be removed. I was reading in my quiet time today uh, from Psalm 98 how when this happens... It says that the the rivers and the seas and the mountains will clap their hands in praise, that they will shout to God in triumph as creation itself is redeemed from the curse. Everything in creation was made for the glory of God. That blows our minds, doesn't it? How does a tree give glory to God? By being a glorious tree that reflects the creativity of its creator. The rocks, the hills, the mountains, everything are redeemed along with humanity and there is no more curse. And the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face. How profound is that line? Through all the course of of Scripture, the people who really knew about God, the greatness of God, The Jewish people would not utter his most holy name, Yahweh. They they would substitute Adonai in place of that Lord because his name is too holy for them to say out loud. The thought that they would ever actually see God paralyzed them with fear because they knew that in their broken human condition, that if they experienced the fullness of God, they would be consumed. It's why when Isaiah in Isaiah 6 got that, that glimpse of God, he just saw the robe of the train of his robe filling the temple, he just gets a little glimpse of the glory of God and he goes, Woe is me. I am undone because I'm a man of unclean lips. But now the curse of sin is removed and we see God face to face. I mean, even Moses, the friend of God, when God revealed himself to Moses, he only gave him a a glimpse of part of who he is. The great prophets only got a glimpse of God. They'll see Him face to face. And His name will be on their foreheads. That sounds so weird to us. Like, oh, are we robots that have had something stamped on us? But appreciate, I guess the thing that drives it home for me is um, in some of our trips to Africa doing mission work, when we've worked with the Messiah people, almost all of them are marked with deep scars on their foreheads. They, They are marked as belonging to a particular clan and a particular tribe, and they will absolutely wear that for the rest of their lives. Nothing could take that away. You will, when they see each other, they know immediately who they belong to by the marks that are on their heads. It's that kind of picture. that, that it's, it's not like a, a cruel thing. It's a loving thing that the Lord says, I'm going to mark you in a way that every time you see one another, you're going to look at each other and go, oh, she belongs to Jesus. He belongs to Jesus. I know whose family he's in. That's my brother right there. That is my sister. We bear the same name. That's the picture that he's giving us. And night will be no more. People will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun because the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. We're going to revisit that in just a minute. Then he said to me, this is the angel talking to John, These words are faithful and true. The Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servant what must 
soon take place. Let me just clarify something. That the translation that I'm reading, I'm reading from the HCSB. It's a good translation, but the, the word that gets translated as soon again and again here, it also means quickly. And there's a significant difference between soon and quickly. I hope I die quickly. I don't hope I die soon. You get the distinction. When the time comes, I want to die quickly, but I don't want to die soon. If you will read this as quickly, and some of your translations will say quickly, it, it means something different because we know this is happening 1,900 years ago when the angel and John are having this conversation. By our reckoning of time, it didn't happen soon. But what he is saying is when these begin, events begin to unfold, seven years of tribulation, it's going to happen quickly. The, the battle of Armageddon, the judgment of God, the, the things that happen are going to happen quickly. You're not going to have time to get ready when the time comes. The things that you're seeing, they're going to happen quickly. Look, I am coming soon. I am coming quickly. And blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. And then it's interesting that John would include this in his account because it's not a... It's, it's part of... It's things like this that give Scripture the ring of truth because the writers, particularly in the Gospels, and this is one of the... the Gospel writers also writing Revelation, they will show sides of themselves which are not flattering at all. And this is one of those moments. John says, I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who had shown them to me. It's a reminder that angels, who are another created order of beings, are so powerful and so glorious that that's a natural human response. First of all, they scare the bejeebers out of people when they see them. It's why the first thing they always say when they encounter people is, Peace be with you, Pete. Just settle down. It's going to be okay. I'm not here to kill you. You know, that's, that's like their first word. But a second response is not just one of fear, but of wanting to worship. So John said, I, I, I got on my knees to worship. But he said to me, Don't do that. I'm a fellow servant with you, your brothers, the prophets, and those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. Just a great simple reminder. There are people today who get obsessed with angels. You ever notice that? There, there are. It's, it's kind of odd, you know. We, we've got entire stores devoted to just angel stuff. There's nothing but angel stuff, and whatever. But don't, don't go too far with the angel thing. They're created beings made to serve and honor God. Then he said to me, don't seal up the words of the prophecy of this book because the time is near. It's interesting that he said that. Now, there's part of Daniel, which is an apocalyptic book from the Old Testament, portion of that is sealed. In other words, we're not going to figure all of that out. You go back and study the second half of Daniel. There's some of it. It's going to be sealed till Jesus comes back. You'll try, but you won't figure some of it out. This is an open book. You're supposed to understand Revelation. Verse 11, let the filthy still be filthy. Let the righteous go on in righteousness and let the holy still be holy. That, that verse standing alone is troubling, isn't it? Like, wait a minute. Aren't we supposed to be calling everybody to clean up their act? Yes, but this is a reference to the fact that there is coming a point in time in the narrative that is unfolding here. We're now to the point of judgment and beyond. And the point that's being made here is whatever you have been, you just carry on with it. Because there is no cleaning up your act once you get to this point in time. When it, when it starts to unfold, it's going to happen quickly. You're not going to have time after the fact to go, Ooh, I better get my act together. I better change. I better believe. I better give my heart to Jesus and stop being a, a liar or a cheater or a thief. I better change who I am. He says at this point, you just go on and be who you are. Because it's not going to do you any good to try and change at this point. 
It's a sobering word. And then verse 12, and this is one of those things you just got to pay attention because the speaker has just changed without warning. An angel has been talking. Verse 12, Jesus is now talking. And Revelation has been that way. Jesus does some of the talking. An angel does part of it. Verse 12, look, I am coming soon. I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to repay each person according to his work. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the A and the Z and everything in between. I am the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Remember we said those words also mean the source and the goal. I am the source of your life. I am where you came from, and I am the goal of what you were made for. I'm the the thing that you will find ultimate satisfaction in. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they have the right to the tree of life and enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs, the sorcerers, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. Now for the animal lovers, don't freak out. He's not talking about canines when he says the dogs are left out. It was just in that time, it was a reference to people who were thoroughly immoral. Those are all outside of heaven. And again, this is a sobering reminder. I've said it before, I'll say it again. Pastors are the most notorious people on the planet for doing this. We will eulogize a person who has just died. We will eulogize the most godless pagan into heaven in that moment to try and comfort their families. You've all heard it before, hadn't you? We will take the sorriest low down, you know what, and we'll turn them into a saint in 30 minutes in a funeral home. Now, there, I'm not saying you ought to stand up and crush the family's heart, but it just at least tell the truth. Just declare Jesus is our only hope. People can draw their own conclusion about whether or not that person never trusted Jesus. But tell the truth. I mean, Jesus is not making any bones about it. Family of God is going to be on the inside, enjoying all that God has done. But there's a lot of folks going to be on the outside. And he says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to attest to these things to you for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. Both the Spirit and the bride. Both the Holy Spirit and the bride is the church. So both the Holy Spirit and we, the church, say this. Come. Let anyone who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty come. You see, this is the concluding word. It is an invitation. It is a loving call. Please come. Please be forgiven. Please receive. Let the one who desires take the water of life freely. And I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share of the tree of life and of the holy city which are written about this book. And you may say, oh, well, that's a, that's a harsh word. Just understand the heart behind it. When people twist the truth of Scripture and turn it into something that's not true, you're keeping people from coming. And there are people who do this all the time. There are religions and, and cults that are forever taking the truth and putting just enough of a turn on it to keep you from recognizing that Jesus is the only way, that it's faith in Jesus alone, God's grace and our faith that bring us into the family of God. And he says, if you mess with that, if you keep people from coming in, that is the most despicable thing that you can do and expect the judgment of God because God's number one priority for us, 
is that we would belong. And so God comes down really hard on those who would prevent people from joining his family. And he who testifies about these things says, Yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. And the final, final word. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with everyone. Amen. The final word. May the grace of God, the undeserved favor of God, be with all of you. That is a loving, compassionate Father. Calling us, inviting us to receive. That's good news, isn't it? Now... I said before, I feel like, particularly for those of us in the Western church, that there is this gaping hole in our worldview. There's a big gap in our theology, and it's about the future and it's about heaven. And I think the reason for it is very easy to understand. This is the part we don't think we need because we've got it so good here now. What I just said is not true for people in third world countries where they're suffering and they long for deliverance. They have such a clearer view of heaven. This is a major part of their thinking and their theology and how they live their lives is the hope of heaven, the hope of the future, the hope of a full redemption. But it's just a fact. I mean, you can search far and wide in the Western church. We talk little of heaven. We teach little about heaven. We think little about heaven. And the, and the reason for it is just so simple. We've got enough of heaven here and now that we just don't feel like we need to worry about the future. It's like this life feels so good. I don't even have to worry much about the next life. I mean, if it's any step better than what I've got now, great. That's just gravy. That's just icing on the cake. And I've already got the cake here and now. But I've got to tell you this. That to think that way and to leave this as such a vague notion, it creates problems for us. And maybe the best analogy that I can use for what it does to us is, you remember what it was like when you were a kid and you were in school? Maybe this wasn't true of you, but I think it was for most of us. You know, When we were kids in grade school or adolescence in middle school or in high school, how many times did you feel like, I don't want to learn this stuff? I mean, what's the point? What am I going to use this? I don't need to know all the science and algebra and history and civics. What do I need to know about government and economics? I don't need this stuff. I've got what I want here now. I want to be with my friends. I want to do what I like to do. I don't need this stuff. It's not going to help me. And it's only as an adult that you look back and go, Okay, it's not that every single one of those lessons was life-changing or that I was going to use every algebra equation or every history fact that I ever learned. It's not that. But when you look back as an adult, you realize, my goodness, how critically important it was that I got to go through school, that I learned those things, that I learned to read and write, but more importantly, or just as importantly, I learned to have a worldview and to think critically. And now I'm a completely different person as an adult. Those things prepared me for adult life. We all get that, don't we? Well, I need for you to understand this. When we as adults feel like, 
it's, it's future stuff, it's heaven stuff, it's revelation stuff. It's hard. I mean, it's, it's hard to figure out. It's, it's hard to visualize. It just stretches my mind. I'll hear people say, I don't like thinking about that. I guess that's just hard. I don't, I don't like having to try and understand that, make sense of that. And the bottom line is, I just want what I've got right now. Just leave me alone and just let me enjoy the life that I have right now. We sound like fifth graders who don't want to go to math class. And I want to tell you, the same principle is true. The things that you think you don't need to have to think about, the things that you think are just too hard to try and understand and make any sense out of, it's critically important that you wrestle with it, that you study it, that it informs how you live your life today. Because as you begin to grasp it, it will change how you live. And we need to be transformed. So we need, the stuff I'm going to say today, some of it is not going to be clear. Some of it you're going to go, I'm not sure about that. Good. Go home and wrestle with it. I'm not sure about some of what I'm going to say today. How's that for you? I'm going to tell you some things I'm sure about. I'm going to tell you some things I'm wrestling with. But I want to at least get you thinking. Create a little cognitive dissonance. So you have to go home and wrestle with it too. So, all right. With that said, there are four things that I want to point out in the text for us to consider and, and have to deal with. And the first one is this. It just kind of wrapping up the chapter 21 part, is just accept that heaven is not a static model but an active reality. That's not a great way to say it. I just couldn't figure out a better way to say it. That I, I get this sense that when we talk about the perfection of heaven, and we, you know, it's this wonderful, glorious place, giant walls, all the foundations, the gemstones, the, the glory, the color, the transparent gold that everything's made out of. When we see all this and we, we know that, you know, the glory of God is present and we're there and there's just, you know, there's no filth, there's nothing wrong. Somehow, I think we translate that to, so we're going to have to kind of freeze that in time. Because if I'm there and I'm doing anything, it's not going to be perfect anymore. <laughs> Suddenly, somebody, we're going to need a street sweeper if, if we start doing anything, you know. It's, it's just going to be a mess if we actually are acting... Do you know what I'm talking about? It's like if everything isn't just sort of frozen, I don't know how it works because we mess up everything. And I want you to get that heaven is not this freeze frame picture of, of what we paint. And our pictures usually come up so short. But it's not just us all stuck in choir practice or worship service just sitting reverently worshiping God in silence. It's, it's not just us floating around on a cloud playing a harp. I don't think we ever come close to that anywhere in the Scriptures. It is this living, active experience that life on earth is a training ground for what that's going to be like. And we're going to try and pull that apart and, and see if we can flesh that out a bit today. But, I mean, even the opening portion where you realize here are these... These trees and they're bearing fruit and, and both their fruit and their leaves are for our healing and for our sustenance. And there's, there's a river gushing and it just issues forth from the throne of the Father and of the Son. And I want you to, to consider while the river and the trees are physical realities, they're always pictures of two other things in Scripture. That the, the river of life is always a picture of the Holy Spirit. Our understanding is that the Holy Spirit is the third person in the Godhead and that He eternally proceeds from the Father and the Son, always to reveal and bring glory back to the Father and the Son. Where does the river of life proceed from? From the Father and the Lamb. And it is the, the water of life. To receive it imparts life. When Jesus said, is anybody... 
thirsty, let him come to me and drink, and, and I'll, you know, I'm going to give him this water of life that will spring up in him to eternal life. And he, and he goes on to say, this was about the Holy Spirit that he's talking about. So it's a picture of the Holy Spirit that's available to us to impart life. And the trees of life on either side are, are physical pictures of Jesus. You know, again, paradise is being restored. And what was it in Eden in the final verse of chapter 3 where sin and the curse enter into the picture? And the final, what's the last thing that's done in chapter 3? You remember? God sends an angel with flaming sword to guard the way to what? You don't ever get to go back to the tree of life because God said that would be the great tragedy is if you could continue to receive of the tree of life so that you don't ever die, then you'd live eternally separated from me, and I don't want that to happen. Well, now we're given access again to the tree of life, the, the tree that to receive its fruit, to be filled by it, we are healed by its leaves and sustained and given eternal life by its fruit. It's a picture of receiving Jesus in your life, but these are physical realities here as well. Anyway, it's a picture of the lushness and, and the, the livelihood of heaven. And one line here that I find so intriguing in verse 4, His servants will offer God service. You know, you think about life here on earth, and we have opportunities to really be active in serving God. I don't think we think of heaven that way because we feel like God just goes, zap, everything's right, ta-da, and everything's just frozen in its perfect condition. Just leave it like it is. God has been active as creator again. He's created a new universe, a new heaven, a new earth. Oh, by the way, I didn't say this last week. I want to really just get you thinking. In the, the picture of the new creation that's given in chapter 21, new heavens, new earth, new holy city, descending but never totally descending to the earth, it is a picture of, of this Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem, the holy city, that is more or less, it sounds like, suspended above the earth and 12 different foundations that are all translucent. We would assume we, we see up through that, lights radiated through that. Theologians have theorized, here we go, here's one of those things I'm not sure about, but it's intriguing to think about. We, we do know this about the size of the holy city. It is so big, 1,500 miles by 1,500 miles by 1,500 miles. If you took the moon and if you could carve it up where you just chiseled off the, the curves on the outer edges, but you made it the biggest cube that you could make out of the moon, it's smaller than the New Jerusalem. Can you begin to appreciate how vast the city is? The moon would fit inside the New Jerusalem. It's, it's so big. Well, what has been theorized, and I think it's probably true, is that the New Jerusalem is the center of the new universe. And while our moon orbits the earth, that's probably going to be reversed in the new order. That the throne of God and the New Jerusalem are likely the center of the universe and that the earth revolves around that and the whole universe revolves around that and this is the center point because it radiates and lights the whole universe. That's a pretty cool and interesting picture, isn't it? That the center of everything is the new Jerusalem, the throne of God. don't know that for a fact, but it sounds like a pretty good interpretation of what's described there. And I'm not even sure where I was going before I chased that rabbit. Oh, oh. And his servants will offer God service. This life is preparation for the one that is to come. And we have a lot of different roles serving God in a variety of different ways. Picture that in the new Jerusalem, with a new earth and a new universe, it's not a closed, confined environment. 
12 big gates in every direction, always open so that people can come and go. Let's flesh out this idea of what will we be doing while we're there. The second thought is this. Christians today are being groomed for future leadership roles in heaven. He says in verse 5 of us, and they will rule as kings forever and ever. You go home and think about that one for a little while and come back and give me a report. That you, as a son or daughter of God, will rule with God. Doesn't, don't, listen, there's heresy that teaches that God was as we are and that we one day will be as God is. Eh, wrong. That is not what the Bible teaches. You're not going to turn into a God one day. We are going to be the sons and daughters of God, and that's a glorious privilege. But you're not going to be divine, but you're going to be children of the, of the true God. And you are being trained for the day in which you will rule forever. Now, I don't know about you, but the first question that comes to mind for me is, well, who in the world are we ruling over? <laughs> I mean, if everybody that's not in the family of God is long gone and all of us in the family of God are called to rule, well, who are we ruling and what does that look like? Which calls up an invitation to, to now wrestle with what does the new created order look like? God is creating again. Now, here's the thing. I'm just going to throw it out for you to have to wrestle with. I'm not going to be able to complete the picture because we'll just have to see with time. Angels are a different created order from us. They didn't get created and put in the Garden of Eden. They, were, they apparently predate everything in human history. And they have a whole narrative, that most of which we don't know. We do know that at some point in their history, a third of them, who had been led by one of their rulers, Lucifer, took part in a rebellion where they sought to overthrow the very throne of God and there scripture says and there was war in heaven and Lucifer and that one third of the angels of heaven were cast out so I mean you know there's this much greater narrative of what happened in their story in their timeline but their story spills over into human history Adam and Eve are created the universe we know is created and they come and interact with us both in terms of evil and in terms of good the angels who are faithful to God very active in interacting with us, communicating messages from God, sustaining us, helping us. They are very involved in what God is doing here and now, but they didn't create the world, and the world wasn't created initially for them. This created order who has its own story, now what we know as the created order, their lives and their authority spills over. And there's rank and file in terms of the angels of heaven. Michael is an archangel of heaven. He has great authority. He deals with demons who have greater and lesser authority. Could it be that when God makes a new heaven, a new earth, a new Jerusalem, sin is removed from the equation for us, could it be when it says that we will reign as kings forever with him that it is describing roles that we're going to have in the next created order, which we have no concept of, but which involves more than just the people who've lived in history. It's at least worth thinking about, isn't it? Would that be so terribly out of line with what has already happened with angels and with humans? Some of you are looking at me like, that's interesting. And some of you are looking like, what is he talking about? All I know is what we have experienced in the natural is preparing us for a much bigger, more filled-out version in eternity. 
And that's pretty wild to consider that there are going to be roles and responsibilities, levels of authority and leadership. Jesus told stories to illustrate this. I want you to hear the parable that Jesus told in Luke 19. People were frustrated because they didn't understand why the kingdom of God wouldn't come, why it wouldn't hurry up and be fulfilled. And Jesus told this parable. There once was a man of high rank who was going to a country far away to be made king, at which time he planned to come back home. That line alone sounds confusing if you don't get the background. In Jesus' time, this had happened. Remember, Israel, Palestine is a conquered state that lives as a part of the Roman Empire, lives under the authority of Rome. Now, they would have local rulers. They would have local kings who served under the ultimate rule of the Roman emperor. And in Jesus' lifetime, this exact thing had happened. A local authority who wanted to be made king went to Rome to become the favorite of the emperor and to eventually be named king, and then he would return back to the Holy Land and reign as king. Herod did this. So when Jesus said this, it was completely familiar to them. Somebody who was here, and people knew him, and then he went away, and he was made king, and he came back, and suddenly it was like, holy cow, we recognize him, but he is a totally different guy. He is the king. He is in charge. Jesus is telling that to talk about himself. He is the one who came to earth as a human being, like us. You could hurt him, cut him, he'd bleed. He's just like us. But he's gone away, and when he returns, he's going to be the king over everything, and his reign will be forever. So he's the, the one being described here. Before he left, this king-to-be called his ten servants, and he gave them each a gold coin. That gets translated a bunch of different ways. The word was mina, and it just means each of them was given three months' wages. So figure out what that would be. In our culture on the eastern shore, it's about $12,000. So he gives them each $12,000. And he told them, see what you can earn with this while I'm gone. And the man was made king and came back. At once he ordered his servants to appear before him in order to find out how much they had earned. The first one came and said, sir, I have earned 10 gold coins. So if he had been given $12,000, I made another $120,000 with that. With the one that you gave me. Well done, he said. You're a good servant. And since you were faithful in small matters, I will put you in charge of ten cities. The second servant came and said, Sir, I've earned five coins with the one that you gave me. And to this one he said, You will be in charge of five cities. What's Jesus teaching in this? It's very clear who he's talking about in terms of the, the king. But who are the servants? And what's the point of the money? What's that all about? It's not a complicated story. He's talking about every one of us. You see, we are the servants left to manage the responsibilities here on earth until Jesus the King returns. And he says, what matters is I've given every one of you resources and opportunities. And I am watching carefully to see what you do with those. Because when I come back, my first order of business with you it's going to be to find out how you manage the resources and opportunities that you were given because there's going to then be a correlating set of rewards and responsibilities that will match up to what you did with the responsibilities and the resources that you had. Every single person here, you have a, a load of resources, responsibilities, relationships here and now. And it's so interesting that Jesus draws us this picture where the first thing of interest to him is not getting from you 
what you have produced. I mean, notice the king doesn't do that. He doesn't go, give me my money, I want my money. It's not about that. He is completely focused on, I just want to find who my best servants were because I want to load them up with responsibility. I want to put them in positions of authority. If you took what I gave you and you multiplied it tenfold, I will put you over ten cities. It's an interesting picture, isn't it? He's giving us an analogy for our time of standing before the judgment of God in heaven and saying some are going to get great rewards. Now, it's a pretty long parable. I didn't try and print it all in your outline, but it's interesting. The part that I didn't print, he works his way down to a servant who he says, all right, what did you do with what I gave you? And he comes back and says, here, here's the coin you gave me. And he's like, there's nothing more you... You didn't do anything with what I gave you in all the time I was gone? You didn't do anything? And he says, take his and give it to the guy with ten. See, again, he's not interested in what can I take from you, what can I get from you. He's looking for those who are responsible and those who are irresponsible. And to the one who did nothing with what he was given, no reward and no authority is given. This life... It is a training ground and it is a proving ground where you and I, we are, we are setting, we are casting the, the die for what our life is going to be for all of eternity. And I hear people all the time say this when we talk about heaven. I don't care what I do when I get there. As long as I'm in, I'm good. You're wrong. I'm not saying you'll be miserable in heaven. There's not going to be pain and suffering in heaven. That is not the case. But there will be so many people who are going to be so sickened by how they wasted the opportunities that they had on earth. And when they get to heaven, they're going to look around and go, wish I'd paid attention in algebra class. Wish I'd learned that history. You know what I'm saying, the analogy. Be just like adults who get to adulthood and all the way through school, they just say, I just can't wait till I'm done with school. I can get out there. I can work. I don't care what I do. I'll be happy doing it. Yeah, check with me when you're 30 and you're 40 and you're working a low-end job, making $2 above minimum wage, trying to support a family. Tell me you won't be going, I wish I had paid attention in school. I wish I had tried. I wish I had had the, the foresight to do more with the opportunities that I had. And heaven is going to feel that way for some people. I wish when I was alive on earth I had not wasted those opportunities. I wish I hadn't spent everything on me. I wish I hadn't used all of my time just for my own selfish hobbies and goals and stuff. Just working more hours to make more money to spend on me and my family. He's looking for people who would be truly responsible. In Matthew 25, when Jesus had told a similar parable, he concluded by saying, You did well, you're a good and loyal servant. Because you were loyal with small things, I will let you care for much greater things. Third truth, corollary to, to that one. Our position and rewards in heaven will correlate to our choices on earth. Jesus says in verse 12, Look, I am coming quickly and my reward is with me to repay each person according to what he has done. There's just one fundamental reality about this that I need for you to get. People get confused because there are two moments of judgment where we stand before God and the nature of those judgments are very different. I need you to be clear on this because I think, I think most people are confused over this. The first time that we will stand before God in a, in a judgment seat situation is what's described in what we already read 
two weeks ago in Revelation, as described by Jesus in Matthew 25, where he separates all humans who've ever lived into two groups, the sheep and the goats. And that is a sorting out who, who belongs to the family of God through faith in Jesus Christ and who does not. For all who are saved and forgiven, who get to experience heaven and eternity with God, there's only one thing that gets you there. It is the grace of God, the undeserved favor of God, which you tap into by simply placing your faith in the crucified and risen Jesus and receiving his forgiveness. There's no good thing you can do to earn that. Are we all on board with that? Any questions about that part of the judgment? It is completely about grace. So we're all good with that? Okay, hang on. There is a second judgment that you face. And this will have nothing to do whether you're in or out. You only face this judgment if you're a part of the family of God. The weeding out has been done, but now we all must stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And the, the parameters are completely different. The, the outcome is a completely different set of issues. Paul speaks of this in 2 Corinthians 5.10 when he says, For we all must stand before Christ to be judged, and everyone will get what they should. That's not describing the first judgment, is it? I mean, at the, the great white throne judgment where everybody's just split into two groups, would anybody get into heaven if we got what they deserved? If they got what they should? No, no, no. This is not describing that judgment. Because there's going to be millions and billions of us who get to experience eternal life, not because we deserve it, but at this judgment, everyone... By the way, he's writing to the church here, so he's talking to Christian people. Everyone will get what they should. They will be paid for whatever they did, good or bad, when they lived in this earthly body. Really? At that judgment, this is not about God just giving grace gifts to whomever he will. This is about God giving what we deserve. What does that look like? Paul writes about it in his first letter to the Corinthians when he says this, For no one can lay any foundation other than the one we already have, which is Jesus Christ. He's saying, let's be clear about this. The only way to belong to the family of God is just by faith in Jesus. No good works. None of that stuff's going to get you there. Jesus is the only foundation. That's not what we're talking about. Now we're talking about what gets built on top of the foundation. Now, anyone who builds on that foundation may use a variety of materials. And then he names off six materials that come in two broad categories. Gold, silver, jewels, wood, hay, or straw. He says, once you belong to Christ, you're eternally in the family of God. Now on the foundation of Jesus, you begin to do some things. You begin to build some things with the opportunities and resources that you've been given. And what gets built, some is made of wood, hay, and straw, and some is made of gold, silver, and precious stones. What's the difference? Well, on the judgment day, fire will reveal what kind of work each builder has done. The fire will show if a person's work has any value. If the work survives, that builder will receive a reward. But if the work is burned up, the builder will suffer great loss. The builder will be saved, but like someone barely escaping through a wall of flames. Did you follow that? He says, at this judgment, 
God's not judging whether or not you belong to his family. He's only talking to his family. And he says, every single one of you are going to stand before me. You're going to give an account, just like in this parable where the ten servants stood and gave an account. And he's going to say, I gave you opportunities. Chuck, I gave you some opportunities. They weren't the same as Beth's, but I gave you each opportunities and responsibilities. Let's see what you did with that. And he, he pretty much is alluding to the fact that everybody's going to have something to present. Oh, look at what I did with my life. Look at how I spent my money. Look at how I spent my time. Here's what I did with my life. Look at all that I built on the foundation of Jesus. And he said, you need to understand that when we pass through this level of judgment, it's going to be like you take everything in your life and you put it through a wall of fire. And we're going to find out through the fire who built with wood, hay, and straw because it's going to go like dry leaves on a campfire. They burn brightly for about five seconds and then nothing is left. But other lives... What has been built, he said, it's like they made it out of gold, silver, and precious jewels. You can put that through the fire, and it comes out just as shiny and precious and new as ever before because fire doesn't hurt it, and he says the judgment of God is going to work like that. Every life is going to be exposed for what it is. There are going to be some people that we admired on earth, and when we get through this level of judgment, we're going to look at them and go, Wow, not what I thought. Because Paul said they're going to suffer great loss. They're going to come through. And he says they will survive. But as one who has suffered great loss and who barely survived. I mean, in my mind's eye, I just see somebody come through and they're wide-eyed. And they don't have any eyelashes or eyebrows. And smoke is just going up from what used to be their eyebrows. And they're going, wow, i got nothing left. i got Jesus. I'm in. Praise God, I'm in. But I think I'm going to be the trash collector or the... The sewage disposal guy or something in heaven because I didn't build well. What's the difference? We don't have time to fully unpack that, but we better think about it. I do know this. Not going to be any reward in heaven for the house that I live in on earth today. If my house is bigger than yours here on earth... I guarantee you that will not correlate to me having a bigger house than yours in heaven. In fact, it may have a reverse correlation. I'm not so sure. The money that I spend on me is not going to lay up any reward for me in heaven of that, I'm sure. The money that I give to help others, if i got to toot my own horn and make sure you know about it, there's no reward for me in heaven. The Scripture's clear about that. That's why Jesus said, don't you let your left hand know what your right hand is doing when you give and when you serve. Because if you do, you will have all of your reward here on earth. In other words, you having to let somebody know how generous you were and what a joy it was to be able to give. Because, see, we want to cover our pride with false humility. He said, I hope you enjoyed that because that's all the reward you're going to get. That there's going to be a judgment that's going to show who really served and who really sacrificed and who really gave to make a difference in the lives of others in Jesus' name. Now, church, I don't want you to take this the wrong way. But sometimes we just need to hear hard truth. We have reached a sickening state. In the history of the American church. We have settled for comfortable and convenient Christianity. When we have to beg, borrow, and plead to get people to say, Yeah, you could count on me. 
to give one hour every six weeks to help with the kids. Yeah, I let people come in my house for two hours a week, three times a month. It's crazy how pervasive it has become that when you ask people, would you pray about accepting this opportunity to serve others in ministry? How it's become almost the universal response. Well, I'd like to help, but I don't want to be in charge of anything. I don't want you to count on me. But if you need somebody to just fill in every now and then, you can't do anything with that. You can't reach the world with, I don't want to really be responsible. But if you just need somebody to help out, Jesus doesn't need somebody to help out. We're going to stand before God and He's going to say, I gave you time, I gave you resources, I gave you opportunities. What did you do? Did you just find a little hour here or there to give? Were you too afraid you might burn a little bit of your vacation time if you went on that mission trip? Or you might use a little bit of your free time that it might infringe on your football time or your whatever time if you actually committed to give something away? There are kids back there right now who need Jesus. They need to see Jesus with skin on Him now. They need to see men and women who are passionate enough about the things of God to say, yes, it's going to cost me something. You can't follow Jesus without paying a price. And it's time that we stop acting like serving Jesus is convenient. It's not. Jesus said, if you're not willing to give up everything you have, even your own life, you aren't worthy of me. And I tell you, I just want to fall on my knees in in tears because of the weakness of my own service. Don't think that I'm anything special. I look at my own life and and the times that we get to go and visit people who truly are giving everything in the service of Jesus. And I feel so small because He's worthy of my all, not my leftovers. I'm so sick of my own heart. I don't want to have a leftover commitment to God. I will stand before Him. And it won't be for big applause for the little things that I gave him. He's going to say, what did you do with every day, with every resource, with every opportunity? I do not want to settle for a a watered-down, westernized version of faith where it's convenient. And I'll step off the box now. But we will stand before him and answer. Jesus said, don't collect for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, break in and steal, but collect for yourselves treasures in heaven. I've preached for a long time, and I, I, I truly mean this. Of all the things I've ever preached over the years, the one thing I've ever preached, I still remember, it was, it was probably 15 years ago, I preached on this verse, I preached on this truth. I've never had any teaching that I've ever done get more pushback than this one thought. Jesus saying, you live your life to lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Don't worry about laying up treasures on earth. What you hoard for yourself or what you spend on yourself here on earth, you get no reward for that in heaven. But you actively think about what are you going to do that's going to essentially, in a sense, fill your bank account in heaven. It's not a bank account, but you know what I'm saying. You lay up for yourselves rewards and opportunities in heaven by how you live your life here now. I had so many people wish back and go, that is not how we're supposed to do it. We should do it because it's what we want to do and because it's the right thing to do. Yeah, we should, but we won't. We won't. 
Jesus understood that. He designed us with a need for reward. That's why you have to reward your kids when they do the right thing. Jesus does the same thing. And it's why he could just say with integrity, you live your life in a way that lays up future rewards. And you'll get them. He says, to the extent that if you give a cup of cold water in my name to somebody who's thirsty, I tell you, nobody can steal that reward from you. It's pretty cool to consider God's been watching even the little stuff. Fourth and final truth, and I'm done, but don't miss this because it's important. Scripture concludes with a plea for all to come to Christ. He says, blessed are those who wash their robes so that they will receive the right to eat the fruit from the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. That picture, all of those who belong to the family of God, it says they have to have their, figuratively, their, their robes washed white. It is a picture of the stains of our sin being completely removed. And it's only the blood of Jesus that can do that. Outside the city are the evil people, those who do evil magics, who sin sexually, who murder, who worship idols, and who love lies and tell lies. But the Spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears this say, come. And let whoever is thirsty come. Whoever wishes may have the water of life as a free gift. The final word is this. God does not want any of us to miss out on belonging to his family. You were made for one thing above everything else, and that is to belong to the family of God, to live in a constant, you know, ongoing, really personal relationship with the God who made you. And over and over and over, his call to your life, regardless of what your experiences might indicate, it has been, come, come, come and receive. It's not about how much can you come and give to God. Yes, it's going to be costly for you when you belong to him, because reaching a world is a costly thing. But you don't get to God by giving him something. You get to God by simply being willing to receive. He says, those who are thirsty, come and drink. And I'll give freely. But he says, you've got to have your robes washed white. And you don't wash them white by trying harder or going to church more. The only way that the stain of our sin is removed is by recognizing nothing that I can do would clean up my act. Can I tell you just a really silly illustration about that? I hate even admitting this one. When Jackie and I got married five years ago, there were a bunch of things that improved in my life with that, needless to say. One of the little perks was, I went from doing all of my own laundry to only doing a small fraction of my laundry. Jackie, and our sharing of responsibilities, does most of the laundry. I help some, but she does most of that. I'm probably going to get in trouble for sharing this because I hadn't talked to her about this in advance. But uh, I don't know why. My guess is that, that suddenly living with somebody who's so neat, so clean, so tidy, I probably started paying attention to things I had not, to, not noticed before and that I'd probably ignored as just a nasty slob of a single man. But not too long after we got married, I started noticing spots on my favorite shirts, on, felt like all of my shirts, stains, like grease stains on my stuff. I, I just thought this was really weird, and I'm like, is there something wrong with our washing machine? It's, I think Jackie must be doing something wrong. That, this is an honest confession. This was one of the examples of many things that God used to bring to light a gigantic flaw in my character. I was a blamer. If something was wrong with me, I always wanted to find somebody else to blame for whatever was wrong in me, big or small. Jackie knows this. She can tell you I was a big-time blamer. 
If, we, if something went great in our relationship, whether I said it or not, I thought it must be her fault. It's probably more her than me. I was just a blamer. It's a character flaw. So when I started noticing all these grease spots on all my shirts, I'm like, must be something wrong with the washing machine. Or Jackie must not know how to do laundry right. I'm getting all these stains. And I'm actually thinking this. I mean, for a long time, I'm like, there's another one. There's another one. What is wrong? Does the woman not know how to get a shirt clean? And then it was like the Holy Spirit just said, dummy, take a careful look at that shirt. Where are all the stains? None on the back. All on the front. Uh-oh. I think I know what that means. If every stain on my clothes is in this zone, that means I've been missing my pie hole for a long time. I'm wanting to blame her for the stains in my life. And God said, yeah, and you did that in more ways than with your laundry. You want to blame other people for the stains in your own life. That is a sobering realization. Because every one of us carry stains. Every one of us carry the stain of sin. And the thing that's so frustrating is, I couldn't get any of those stains out. I mean, it's like once you've washed it and dried it, you can put all the shouts you want to on it. Now you're going to want to shout when it's over with because it's not going to work. You can't get it out. Now, this is no lie. It sounds like I'm doing a commercial here, but this is the honest to goodness truth. Once I talked to Jackie about this, she's like, oh, I can take care of that. Haven't you ever heard of Lestol? Heard of what? Lestol. And apparently a bunch of y'all hadn't heard of it either. Let me tell you, it will change your life. She's like, I've got this stuff in a bottle. It will take out those stains. Give it to me. And it does. It's like a mirror. If you hadn't got it, write it down. L-E-S-T-O-I-L. It'll change your world. She started using it. She took all my stains out. I'm like, I get it, Jesus. I get it. In the name, even a message, L-E-S-T-O-I-L, less toil. You think about it in life. We try to make it better. We try to get the stains out. We try to clean up our act, and it doesn't work, does it? And Jesus says, I'll give you some less toil. It's my blood. It takes out the stain that you have tried. You can't clean it up. You can't straighten up. You are messed up. And I have the answer. It will not come by trying harder. It will come by simply trusting, believing, and receiving. You just got to ask and be forgiven. But you got to own it. You can't keep blaming everybody else for your dirty laundry. Jesus, I'm messed up. I need your help. I need your forgiveness. And he will make your robes white as snow. You'll be able to stand before God in the righteousness of Jesus. And it comes by faith in God. Would you join me as we turn to him in prayer? Jesus, you are good. All your ways are right. And you reign. You are Lord and King. We worship you today. We bless and honor your name. There's no other name that we can find salvation in. We call on your name today. If today you know you need the stain of your sin removed, your sins forgiven, the forgiveness of God in your life, he says, 
just come and receive. Would you just ask Him for that? Would you just pray a simple prayer that says, Jesus, I need You. I need Your forgiveness for my sins. I need Your power in my life to change me. I give up on trying to clean myself up. And I trust in You to make a new person out of me. By faith, I receive Your forgiveness. I receive acceptance into Your family. And the hope of heaven is my future. Oh God, we thank You for hearing and answering prayers that we pray in simple faith in Your name. Maybe you already know that you belong to the family of God, but the Holy Spirit has spoken to you and said it is time to stop living conveniently. You know you'll stand before God and give an account, and right now you don't like the account that you'd give. If that's where you stand, would you just ask Him to show you today and this week a fresh opportunity to get busy making a difference? God, I pray that you'd make this personal, that you'd make it individual, and that you would show us ways to get off our backsides and into service. We want to make a difference. Holy Spirit, you speak and move and have your way, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hi. Thanks so much for taking time to tune in and listen to the message today through Freedom Online. Uh, We would love the opportunity to meet you personally anytime that you're in our area. But if today you heard something that really connected or that maybe you've got questions about, you'd like to talk with somebody or have someone pray with you, we'd love to hear back from you. You can reach us in a couple of different ways. You'll find on the website a contacts link. You can contact me or any member of our leadership directly. Or you can call us at the number that you see on the website or at the bottom of the screen now. Thanks again for tuning in, and we hope that you have a great week.